Please turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. And I will begin with a, a confession. I, uh, I'm more motivated when I have a deadline. Right, if there's a, a little bit of pressure, I perform better. Right, When somebody's kind of looking over my shoulder, I've got to get things done. I, I, really, I end up uh, getting it done faster and better. And I think my first awareness of this uh, truth in my life was during uh, seventh grade math. Um, for those of you who grew up on the left or the right coast, you know that things out there are a little more progressive. Right? So my junior high, uh, we had uh, no walls. Right? There are no walls, which makes a lot of sense, right? Because junior high kids are so focused that why would you need walls in between the classrooms, right? Uh, so we had no walls, and, and in fact, my math class was, uh, uh, was described as self-paced. So what that meant was every... Morning, I would walk into math class. I would go to the file cabinet. I would open it up and I would take out the next lesson. I would sit at my desk, teach myself that lesson. If I had some problems, I could go up and ask the tutor to help me a little bit. Then I'd go back and I would take the quiz on my own. I would grade the quiz on my own. If I got a certain grade, I would file that one away and then I would move on to the next lesson. And, and that's the way that, that the semester was designed to work. It was all entirely self paced. And so, you know what uh, my friends and I did was nothing. Right, I mean, we didn't. We did nothing. We, you know, we uh, we'd make jokes and laugh, and we'd pass notes, and we would just mess around until the end of that quarter, and we'd realize, okay, we had a minimum requirement. You had to get like twenty lessons done in the quarter, and so in two days, we would motor through twenty lessons, learn all the stuff, take the tests, and immediately forget it. Right, and then we'd start another quarter, and we would do nothing. Right, because there was no. No, no pressure up until that, the very end. And, you know, if I'm honest, that's, that kind of, that's kind of true in my spiritual life as well. Like, my quiet times are better because I have to preach. And it's like, well, you better spend a little time in the Word. You've got to say something on Sunday. It's terrible. I'm, I know. My prayer life is better. My quiet times are better. My time in the Word is more consistent. Because I've got that pressure. But I have learned that my my best times with the Lord are when there's no pressure. Nobody's watching. I'm just, I'm just doing it because I love Jesus and I want to know Jesus and I want him to change me and I want him to be reflected in my life. No one's watching. There's no pressure. It's just, just me and the Lord. And the motivation has come from within and it's just what I, what I long to do. Paul's going to give us an exhortation this morning and it's this. Pursue Jesus with all that is in you when no one is watching. When no one's watching, just because you love him. And when you do that, that's the richest environment for Jesus to transform your life and to transform your witness and make you into a beautiful, bright light. Not because there's any external pressure, but just because the love of Christ is compelling you to know him, to be changed by him, and to bear witness to him throughout the world. All right, so let's read Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Paul writes, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more so in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. One command, one imperative drives the entire paragraph that we're about to look at this morning, and it's this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's a command. It's an imperative. There's something here for us to do. 
Work out your salvation. Salvation is probably actually, I would say, the, maybe the most important word in the entire Bible. And so we have to step back for a moment and say, well, what does Paul mean exactly by the word salvation? We introduced this last week, but remember, words only have meaning in context. Right? They only have meaning in context. Uh, when I teach uh, word studies, uh, one of the illustrations I'll give is the word trunk. What does the word trunk mean? Well, Depends on the context, right? If you walk out into the parking lot and I say the word trunk, you're thinking trunk of the car. If I'm walking through uh, your, your bedroom, you might say, well, there's a trunk at the end of the bed. That's a trunk too. Or we're going through the zoo, well, it's a trunk of an elephant. Well, those are three very, very different things, all represented by one word trunk. How do you know what I'm talking about? It's all context, right? Salvation is the same. The word salvation, as we said a couple weeks ago, simply means deliverance from or rescue from something. But the context tells you what are we being delivered from or rescued from. And there are two large categories. There's, there's a physical rescue and then there's spiritual rescue. So in the physical world, it could be deliverance from sickness, Matthew 9.22. Or deliverance from enemies, Philippians 1.19, which we looked at recently. Or Philippians, uh, or Acts chapter 27.20, uh, deliverance from a physical danger, a threat in your life. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to take a, a short tangent here and hopefully not derail us completely, but I do need to tell you about uh, something that happened yesterday. And uh, it's just felt relevant to me. So yesterday, I was uh, driving up here to the office to work a little bit more on uh, the sermon. And as I was driving up, I, I looked ahead of me on the road, on Rock Prairie Road, and I saw these two young women crouched down on the side of the Rock Prairie Road and their car was parked on the other side of the road and they're bending over and they're looking at something, they're holding something. And as I got closer, I realized that it was my daughter and our friend Chelsea. On the side of the road, I'm like, should I stop? <laughs> I, I guess I need to stop. So I, I pulled past them and I, and I pulled over and they walked up to me and they were holding... Guess what? Think about all the stories that I've told you recently. Guess what what they were holding? They were holding a kitten. Right, they're holding a kitten. I'm like, no, no. Don't even ask. The answer is no, right? And so they walk up to the window, this tiny little black kitten, and they say, Dad, Dad, we saved the kitten. And I'm thinking, your kitten has a greater enemy than these cars driving on the side of the road that you're going to have to save this kitten from. Whoa, Dad, what, what should we do? What should we do with this kitten? And I said, you take the kitten to the shelter because they will care for the kitten at the shelter and they will give the kitten shots and a vet will come in and care and it will get the best care it could possibly have. Take the kitten to the shelter. Will you take the kitten to the shelter? Yes, yes, we will take the kitten to the shelter. Do you promise you'll take the kitten to the shelter? Yes, we promise we'll take the kitten to the shelter. And then I got home last night and guess where the kitten is? I am the shelter, right? I am, I am the shelter, Chelsea, I know. (laughs) They saved the kitten from physical danger and from enemies. It is continuously being saved right now, actually, right? So that's physical salvation. Sorry, I just, I had to bring that up. Okay. Now, 
There's also salvation, and this is a little more relevant to what we're talking about this morning, but deliverance from spiritual realities. That is, the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin. That is, salvation covers past, present, and future. Salvation from the penalty of sin is represented in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace, you have been saved. And it's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of anything you do, your works, so that no one can brag, no one can boast. Right? That's past tense. The moment that you believe, God rescues you from the penalty of your sin, which is death. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. Right? That's salvation past if you have believed in Jesus Christ. Now, salvation present is salvation from the power of sin. I think that's what's going on here in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Uh, it's also represented in Romans 6, verse 14, where Paul says, sin shall not be master over you because you're not under law, but you're under grace. Right? You don't have to live under the power of sin right now because you have experienced the grace of God in your life. Therefore, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Salvation past, it's entirely a work of God. You receive it as a gift. Salvation present, that's sanctification. That's something that you must participate in. You must cooperate with. And then there's salvation future. That is salvation from the presence of sin entirely. There will be a day when uh, the the world system will be changed and, and Jesus will rule over all. And so there will be no temptation from the world. There will be no temptation arising internally from your flesh because you will be glorified. And the devil will be removed. So the presence of sin will be completely and utterly gone. That's what Paul, I think, is talking about in chapter 3, verse 21, where he says, Our Savior, Jesus Christ, will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. We will be glorified as Jesus has been glorified, and we will not be subject to sin any longer. So, in other words, uh, for Paul... Salvation is this beautiful gift that's given to you freely. And then throughout your life, you begin to unpack it and to enjoy it, knowing that it's the gift that just keeps on giving forever. Right? And all of this represents salvation. But when Paul uses the word in a particular context, you have to ask yourself, what does he mean in this context? In this context, he's commanding. Work out your salvation, he says. Work it out... With fear and trembling. Well, gosh, that sounds a, that sounds a little bit harsh, doesn't it? Work it out with, with fear and trembling. Uh, you know, uh, fear is not necessarily always an evil thing. It's not a bad thing always, right? There are certain things we should fear. And we're wise to fear, like snakes. I hate snakes. Um, I... We, we live around, there are a lot of woods and a lot of water around us, and so, you know, we get lots of snakes coming through, and I just kill snakes. If I see a snake, I kill snakes. And I know all you, you know, herpetologists and, you know, you lovers of all things reptilian are going, oh, but they're good snakes. They're <laughs> good snakes. They're not good snakes, right? You kill the snake, and then you identify if it's poisonous or non-poisonous, but not good or bad. It's just bad. You kill it. And you know, those good snakes, right? They're breeding millions of other snakes. And so if I chop the head off, it's not a big deal, right? You kill snake. There's a reason that Satan showed up in the form of a snake, man. I do not, I do not, I don't like snakes. So, right. So fear, sin, it will destroy your life, right? There are certain things you should fear and run from. That's not the fear that Paul is talking about here. 
Notice what he says, chapter 2, verse 12. He says, so then, my beloved. What's the so then refer to? That's chapter 2, 9 through 11 that we looked at last week. Someday, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is our friend and Jesus is our brother and Jesus is our Savior. And he is also the creator and the ruler of the universe. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, including your knee and my knee. He is a great ruler. He will return one day on a horse with his robe dipped in blood and a sword by his side and his enemies will be destroyed. He is powerful. He is great. And when anyone saw him in his glory, what did they do? Well, they fell on their faces as if they were dead. They almost wished they were dead. It was so frightening because he's great and he's glorious. That's the fear of the Lord. Now, the difference between... Jesus and the snake is, the snake means us harm, but Jesus means us good. So it's a different kind of fear. It's what the writer of Proverbs meant when he said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? To hold God in honor and reverence and understand who he is and who the Son is as the creator and ruler of the universe, that's leading to wisdom. That is the good life that God has for you. So, Peter will say, 1 Peter chapter 1, if you address as Father, that is, if you call God Abba, if you have an intimacy with the creator of the universe, says then, if you call him Father, conduct yourself in fear during your time to stay upon earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Why? Because we are accountable to him. It it matters how we live. I think probably the best uh, biblical illustration of this is in uh, Exodus chapter 20. Remember in Exodus 20, Moses uh, received the the law and he came down to speak. Uh, It wasn't written on stone yet and he wasn't handing it to them yet, but he had received the law and he came down apparently from the mountain and uh, the people were, were pulling back. They were frightened. They were pulling back from the mountain because there's lightning and thunder and smoke and rocks are flying and crashing. And they pull back and Moses says this to them. Let me go forward one. Moses says, do not be afraid for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. Do you catch the, the, the paradox there? Moses said, don't be afraid. God has come in order to test you so that you would be afraid. Don't, don't be afraid, but just be afraid. And what's he, what he's saying is this, don't be afraid so that you, you retreat. Instead, draw forward in reverence and awe. Be, be drawn to the beauty and the majesty and the glory. But come, come with reverence. In the book of Hebrews, it says, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Why? Because we have this advocate, Jesus, who is making the way for us. So we come with confidence, but we don't come casually. God is God. God is God, and he's great, and and we're not. God is God, and we will give an accounting of our lives to him. The difference between Jesus and the snake is he wants our good. He longs for our good. So as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ 
so that each one of us may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or better, really, it says worthless. Did you live well or did you waste your life? We give an accounting to the creator of the universe. So Paul says, work out your salvation, but do so with fear and with trembling. Now, how do we do that? Uh, That's, uh, in a sense, what the the doctrine of sanctification is all about. I think that... um, Philippians 2, 12, and 13 is probably the most succinct statement of the doctrine of sanctification or how we become like Jesus in the entire Bible. And there are two elements that Paul is going to talk about here. The first is our effort. How do we work out our salvation? Well, first, through our effort. Notice he says, work out your salvation. It's a command. It's an imperative. There's something there for us to, be, to obey. When we say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, Paul usually preaches grace, grace, grace. This sounds a little bit maybe legalistic. But notice he doesn't say work for your salvation. He says work out your salvation. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. When I'm sharing the gospel and I have a moment to get to a verse, this is one that I use. It says, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So, are your works necessary for you to receive the free gift of eternal life? Absolutely not. And if you add them, that is your works, to the free gift, you're nullifying the free gift. Eternal life and the removal of the debt of your sins is an absolutely and utterly free gift. You just reach out and say thank you. So Paul says to the one who does not work. How many of your works are required? None. (laughs) Absolutely none. This is the good news. You can't earn it. So don't try to earn it. Just say, yes, Jesus, thank you, yes. To the one who does not work but believes, that is, just reaches out, as it says in John, and receives, believes in him who justifies the ungodly, that is, the one who puts the godly in right relationship with the creator. Faith and faith alone is credited or reckoned to his account as righteousness. That's it. But now in Philippians 2, Paul says, Work it out. And he uses actually the same word for work. So Paul is either uh, hopelessly contradicting himself or he's talking about a different aspect of salvation. It's the latter. Right? This is justification by grace through faith. Faith. You can't earn it. You can't pay it back. Stop trying. Let me illustrate. Um, this is especially applicable for you who are between 0 and 22. Do you know how much it co- costs your parents to raise you now? The, the number has actually increased... Uh, over the last uh, several years, it's now about 230000 to go from 0 to 18. So that doesn't include college. And I don't know what A&M is now, like four years, 80000 bucks or something like that. So we're up in 310000 assuming your parents paid. Actually, let's assume you all got scholarships. Full ride. So it's just 233000 You can't pay that back. Your parents don't actually want you to pay it back, but you can't pay it back. Because by the time you're able to earn that much money, they're dead. So they're not, right? <laughs> So don't even think about it. And, and they're not asking you. And they don't want you to. But they would appreciate it if you were grateful. <laughs> and I heard lots of, yes, yeah. Amen. Right? They would, they would appreciate it if, in a sense, you lived consistently with that gift. That's what Paul talked about earlier. Live in a, li- a life that's worthy of the gospel. Not that you can pay it back. You can't pay it back. Don't. But sanctification, that is, becoming more like Jesus, that is just showing our gratitude. 
for this incredible gift that we've been given. And how do we do that? Well, Paul says it's through our effort, right? We apply absolutely everything that we are and everything that we have, that is all of our energy, to this process of becoming like Jesus. If I can uh, give you a couple of illustrations of this, Paul applied this to his own life. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he said, uh, he said, I buffet my body. I make my body my slave. Right? I put all my energy into becoming like Jesus. He told his disciple Timothy, chapter 4, he said, Timothy, uh, work out your salvation, that is, train for godliness. He used the same word from which we get the word gymnasium. He says, Timothy, work out, exercise, discipline yourself, train for the purpose of godliness, lean in entirely, because, church, uh, sanctification or becoming like Jesus isn't magic. Now, you're not going to wake up one day and go, I got it. <laughs> I found the secret. There are a lot of books that have that in the title, literally, right? The secret of the Christian life. There's not, it's not secret, and it's not magic. And the moment that you trusted Christ, you probably noticed this. Everything in your life didn't change, right? All of your attitudes and the, the challenges, the struggles, the temptations, they didn't just disappear. It's not magic, God has made us a certain way that our, our habits, that is, our habits of our, our mind, our thought, our heart, our, our actions, those shape our character. And so for us to be changed, we have to learn new habits. We, we have to learn new habits. We have to destroy destructive habits and build healthy habits. And so the Bible calls them uh, spiritual disciplines, or we call them spiritual disciplines. They're disciplines of engagement and disciplines of abstinence. That is, things that we do and then things that cause us to retreat. So things that we do. Prayer. Learning how to pray, how to speak to God and listen to God, and and getting better at that. Uh, Reading the Word, meditating upon the Word, memorizing the Word of God, being in fellowship with other believers. Uh, Maybe you've just trusted Christ and all of your friends have this completely destructive worldview. It's going to be hard for you to change until you disrupt your habits and you've got Christian fellowship and time in the word with them and time in prayer and you learn how to find your spiritual gifts and use them and serve others and you give out of the resources that God has given you, your time and your money, right? All of these are disciplines of engagement, things that you do. Disciplines of abstinence are things like silence and solitude, frugality, learning to live simply, fasting, and things that I, I pull away from, they change the course of my habits, which can affect my character. It's, it's not magic. Now, on the other hand, just changing your habits will not change your heart. Right? You can't change your heart, which is really what God is about. Right? Because uh, sanctification isn't just cleaning up your behavior. It's actually becoming a different person from the inside out. Your, your, your longings, your desires, your passions change. And then your behaviors will follow after that. What the habits do is they make you accessible to the Holy Spirit. Right? Uh, it was Richard Foster wrote a great book. It's called Celebration of Discipline. He said, by themselves, the spiritual disciplines can do nothing. They can only get us to the place where something can be done. In other words, becoming like Jesus isn't a matter just of your willpower. Right? That's another form of legalism. But legalism is, I can earn God's favor rather than just receive the gift of eternal life. Or legalism is, I can change my character through my own effort, which you can't. Okay? Those are both forms of legalism. So, you're saying to yourself, 
Brad, it sounds like you're speaking out of both sides of your mouth here. Which is it? Is it, is it the work of God or is it, is it my effort? And the answer is yes. Right? Great illustration from one of Paul's other letters, 1 Corinthians 15.10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Do you, do you see the tension? Paul's saying it's both. I am what I am by the grace of God. All that I have is a a gift from God. And so in gratitude, I I leaned into that. I applied myself. But really, it was the work of God in my life because nothing happens apart from the powerful work of God in your life. So it is our effort and it is the power of God. It is both. So let's read again. Chapter 2, verse 12. So then, my beloved... Just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more so in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. How is this possible? Because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God who is working in you. And the word for work there is the word that we get in English, uh, energy. God supplies the energy. God supplies the power. There will be no transformation in your life apart from the work of God in your life. And notice what he does. He is the one working in you, both to will and to work, or, or better, both to desire and to do. Right? Only God can change your desires. Only God can change those, those passions of your heart. Because again, it's not just the change of your behavior that becoming like Jesus is about. It's about changing the longings of your heart. Because eventually you will do what you love, So if God can change the loves in your heart, then the behavior will follow. So through the years, I've had many uh, friends who who don't know Jesus or don't follow Jesus. And, you know, their whole worldview is very different from mine and their behavior uh, is different from mine. Often their behavior is really destructive. You know, I don't start with addressing their behavior. Because if they don't know Jesus, they're not going to desire or have the power to change. Where they need to start is with the gospel. Because when you believe in Jesus, the debt of sin is removed and you have eternal life. But there's also something presently that happens. And that is God's spirit dwells inside of you. And God's spirit dwelling inside of you now begins to create new longings, new desires. To be like Jesus inside of you. And as you follow those and you apply yourself, you say, God, I want to make myself accessible to you. Then God changes your life. It's the work of God, but you have to cooperate. Because you can resist it, and you can thwart it, and you can slow it down. But if you cooperate, Jesus will make you more and more and more like him every single day. That is the hope of the Christian life. Let me make it uh, practical. I want you to imagine that someday, sometime in the course of your life, someone wrongs you, right? And probably can't even imagine anything right now, right? You probably can't. You go, yeah, I know that person. You name the person. It just immediately pops to your mind, right? So imagine you say to yourself, okay, I've got to stop hating that person. I will stop hating that person. Next time I see that person, I will not hate. I will show love. And the next time you see that person, what happens? You hate them, right? <laughs> Something rises again in you. Because just saying, I will change, doesn't change you. So instead you acknowledge, God, I can't change myself and I can't change my heart. I can't change my response. But you can. 
Because Jesus hung on a cross and he said, Father, forgive them. I can become like that because Jesus is like that. And so what you do is you begin to meditate on those passages. You think about Jesus on the cross and you remind yourself of Paul's exhortation. Forgive because you've been forgiven in Jesus, right? We forgive because we have received so greatly from God. And then you begin to pray for that person. It's hard at first. First you're like, oh, bring down justice. Ugh, you know, right? That's the prayer. And so, you know, okay, God, bring, bring your, your best, bring your blessing. And then you begin to believe. God, I, I believe that you can work this for good in my life. James chapter 1. I believe you can work this for good in this other person's life. And then you begin to, to journal all the things that you're grateful for, that God has given you, all of those blessings. And as you're praying, you think, you know, I could serve that person. I could do something good on that person's behalf. And you're going through all of these practices. And sometimes even unconsciously, God has changed your heart. Next time you see that person, maybe anger rises up first, but then also Christ on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They're broken, but I'm broken. I was forgiven, and so I can forgive others. And your mind begins to run down new tracks. They're fresh tracks. And maybe they're not natural at first, but you do those over and over and over and over again. The Spirit has access to your heart to change your heart. Is it your effort? Yeah, lean into this. But if you lean in 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 pride and self-sufficiency, nothing happens because it is ultimately just the work of God in your life. So Paul says, work out your salvation. Give yourself to this with fear and trembling, knowing that God is already at work in your life and he's supplying the power to change your desires and to change your behaviors. Now, Paul says, let me give to the Philippian church and to Grace Bible Church a specific application of this. Work it out in a unified community. So notice what he says. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. Paul says, here's the crucible for you to begin to work this out. It's in the context of your relationships in the body of Christ. Now, a few years ago, there was a headline that showed up. Uh, Women's Bible study ends with bloody nose and arrest. Notice it, it's not KBTX and it wasn't Grace Bible Church. This is really good news, right? That's really good news. Uh, it wasn't here at our church. Nevertheless, ouch, right? That's, that's kind of rough on the, the testimony of uh, this women's Bible study in the church where they fellowship, right? But, you know, it, what it illustrates is this. Oftentimes, uh, our relationships with those who are, who are outside the body of Christ are easier because we don't expect them to behave in any particular way. They don't know Jesus, But when we begin to wound each other inside the body of Christ, those sometimes are the relationships that are most difficult to work out. So what's happening here, remember, in the Philippian church is they're an awesome church. They're an excellent church. They are into the Great Commission, and they are participating with Paul in taking the gospel to all nations. But Paul is beginning to hear reports that that some things are are rumbling inside of this church, and it's all about uh, disunity that's starting. Because there's, there's conflict beginning to brew. And he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And remember, only God can do this. And let me tell you specifically where I think you need to apply this lesson. It's in your relationships inside the body of Christ. So, do everything without grumbling and without disputing. So, when I go around uh, town... You know, I like to I like to initiate 
conversations. And, um, you know, if you ever, ever want me to teach you, like, evangelistic techniques, right, I'm really happy to do that. I, I, uh, I start really simple. When I go up to order my food, I'll say, uh, how's your day going? Right? You go, wow, man, that's all you have to do. That's all I do, right? Say, How your day? how's your day going? Now, as I get to know those people, I'll ask more and more questions. I'll find out that they have kids or what they're studying, where they live. Just inter- I just love hearing people's story. But I just start out with this. Uh, how's your day going? And it's interesting because uh, I, it's now become like this sociological study for me. Because I have noticed that 90% of the time I get exactly the same answer. And I don't know, you know, is this, uh, what is this about? Is this like uh, College Station Restaurant Association trains their people the same way? But I, 90% of the time I get the same answer. So, how's your day going? And I hear back, I can't complain. Okay? I've just noticed that 90% of the time the answer is, I can't complain. Now, I don't, I don't say this back, but this is what I think. Right? What I think is, yes, you could. And you probably do, but I don't want to hear it, <laughs> right? That's what I, so it runs through my mind. I go, oh, okay, right. And then I try and move on to the next question. I can't complain. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you do. You, you do. You probably complain all the time, right? Because baseball is not the national pastime in the United States of America. It's complaining. Complaining is the national pastime, right? Students, do your fellow students complain uh-huh. about professors, right, and the exams, and roommates, and parents, right? Students complain about everything. I was a student. I know nothing has changed. Um, Husbands complain about wives. Wives complain about husbands. They both complain about their kids. (laughs) Employers complain about their employees, and the employees complain about the bosses, and we all complain about the government. We all complain, right? That's, that's, That's the hobby. That's our hobby. That's our pastime complaining. Uh, it's interesting, my dad used to uh, do extension work around the state, and one of the slides he would show was, uh, it, it said, write all of your complaints in the box below. <laughs> Boxes like this, right? <laughs> yeah, you do complain, but I don't want to hear it, right? But everybody complains. Paul says, you, you want to really set yourself apart in the world, do everything without grumbling or disputing. And the word grumble in Greek, just like in English, is an onomatopoeia, right? A word that sounds like what it means. Grumble, 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 grumble. That's what it sounds like in Greek. Same thing. It's grumble, 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 right? Like buzz or snap or clap, right? Sounds like what it means, grumble, grumble. It means to murmur your complaint kind of under your voice. We all do it, don't we? We all do it. So, uh, you know, as I was reading this passage, it came to my mind, what exactly are they uh, grumbling and complaining about? I think that Paul uh, at least had in his mind an allusion to Numbers 14 because he uses this same word in 1 Corinthians 10 to talk about Numbers 14, which says, All of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness, right? So they went, we should have died, we should have died. And then it it just overwhelms them and overflows into direct complaints against Moses and Aaron. So in Philippi, what were they grumbling about? I don't know. I don't know. There's nothing in the context to tell us. I think the more relevant question that I asked myself this week is, what do I grumble about? What do I grumble about? What do I complain about? And there are two things that I, two categories. I'd say I grumble about uh, tasks I don't want to do and treatment I don't deserve. That's all. 
uh, tasks I don't want to do. Uh, I have heard it said in, in my house before, uh, I don't want to do the dishes. That's mom's job. Right? Which is terrible, and I, w- I never said it. <laughs> but, you know, I don't, I don't like doing dishes either. I'll take out the trash. I'll do this. But, uh, grumble, 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 right? Treatment that I don't deserve. Nobody's saying thanks. Nobody's really acknowledging uh, how great a provider I, I am at our house and should consequently get a pass for the dishes because I do so much for the family, right? Treatment I, I don't deserve. Tasks I don't want to do. Paul says, do all things without grumbling and without disputing or arguing. So what were they disputing about? Again, we don't know. But if you look at chapter 4, verse 2, there is a specific illustration that Paul uses. He says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, etc., etc. You know, each time I read that, I go, ouch. Ouch. Their, Their names were recorded all of church history like that, right? So, you know, at the end of Paul's letters, he goes, man, I love Lance and I love Rhonda. They're all, would you greet them for me? They're amazing. They're awesome, right? They're just amazing, wonderful people, right? And then he goes, uh, Chelsea and Candace, could you help them work out their problems? They're having a lot of conflict. Like, oh, man, I just wonder if Paul didn't walk through the gates, immediately go find those ladies and go, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, ah. I shouldn't have used your names. But he did. He did. What are they fighting about? We don't know, but we do know that grumbling and complaining was not constructive to build the unity of the body. It was destroying the body. So I think I have an idea generally about what was going on. If you want to turn to the book of James, chapter 4, James gives us a little clue. James chapter 4, verse 1. He says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Uh, what is the one word that's repeated in that, those three verses? Do you see it quickly? Uh, it's you or your. I underlined it. I, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Twelve times in three verses it says you or your. Right. So what's the source of, of quarrels, conflicts? You, actually me, right? <laughs> ah. Do you see how Philippians is tying together? What creates unity? I take my eyes off of myself, and I exalt you. I humble myself. I serve you. And you take your eyes off yourself, and you exalt me. You humble yourself, and you serve me. The source of quarrels and conflicts is self-preoccupation. It's selfishness. It's turning inward. Right? I think about the way that I should be treated, about the tasks that I should be exempt from. About, I think about me, me. Me, me, and I grumble about it, and then I pick fights. Right? So what's the solution? I look at Jesus and the example of Jesus again, and I go, oh my goodness. Creator of the universe hung on a cross and gave his life for me. 
And now he's sent his spirit to dwell inside of me. He's just given and given and given. And all I've been doing is just taking. Ah, I can, I can take my eyes off of myself. And then out of that gratitude, which for me personally is the solution, it's gratefulness, gratitude for all that I've received, then I can turn around and I can give. I can be a giver. And the conflicts just seem to diminish in importance and frequency. Paul says, here's the application, right? Work out your salvation in unified community. And then third, here are the results, right? Here are the results. Chapter 2, verse 14. Philippians, I get back there. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, or literally among whom you shine as stars. Three results. First, your life will shine, because your life will be so very different from the world around you. Your life will shine. Let, let your light so shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your fathers in heaven. You, you're not a source of light. You're a reflection of light. But it's beautiful. It reminds me of Daniel chapter 12 where it says, those who have insight, right, that's, that's us, church, if we believe the gospel. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. I, I personally think that's uh, not just... Figurative, I think it's also literal. Like when Moses was looking at the glory of God and he became beautiful and brilliant. But it is also figurative. Your life will shine. Your life will be beautiful to others when you live this way in front of them. Second, your story will spread. Do all things without grumbling and disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. My translation says holding fast. A better translation is this, holding forth. Holding out the word of life. And now you can speak it with boldness and confidence and credibility because your life has been transformed. Let me take you back to Daniel chapter 12 again. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And notice what they will do. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever and ever. Right? A, a transformed life is a powerful witness. Third, your joy will be shared. Verse 17, Paul says, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and the service of your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. I was talking to Hayes Ross actually on the way in. He said, Brian, I've just been reading this commentary on the book of Philippians and I think the theme is joy. The theme throughout this book is joy. And where do you find your joy? Paradoxically, when you give in. And you serve, as we talked about last week, as you, you yield your life. And as you're with a community of people who are all yielding, man, there's nothing better than that. So uh, how do we apply this? Um, Let me give you three thoughts. Uh, Maybe this morning you uh, feel stuck. Uh, Nothing in your life is changing because nothing in your life is changing. (laughs) That's profound, isn't it? (laughs) Nothing's changing because nothing's changing, and it's time for you to disrupt the flow a little bit. Uh, The status quo is, is not effective. 
And so what the Spirit is speaking to you this morning is it's time to, to really crush some destructive habits and build some fresh new habits. And if you're not sure how to do this, please uh, come and talk to me. Come and talk to Zach, uh, anybody who's at our welcome desk or in the, uh, the room over there. You want to begin to build new habits. Uh, maybe the first thing you need to do is you need to get in biblical community, and we can help you do that. Uh, for me, the best book on building new habits, I think the most balanced between uh, grace and our effort is The Spirit of the Disciplines by Dallas Willard. I think he has a good understanding of uh, the fact that this is the work of God and not leading us toward uh, just legalism, but through really spirit-empowered practices. Right, so maybe you're stuck and you need to uh, disrupt things, but, or maybe it is uh, that you're stuck because you're just going through the motions, right? You're just checking a box. Again, you're, you're, you think you're pursuing uh, sanctification or Christ-likeness, but really, you're just punching a ticket and trying to get God off your back, or you think that you can do it all on your own. And what needs to happen this morning is you just surrender your pride and say, God, I can't. The things that are deep inside me, that I can't change those things. Those things are so deeply broken, I can't transform them. On the outside, things maybe look really good, and my behavior is in line with, with Christians generally, but, gosh, there's, there's pain and hurt and darkness in my heart that I need you to change. And maybe this morning, God's just calling you to humility before him. Or maybe you're stuck because you've been trying to earn God's favor, right? And you have been in church for a long time, maybe your whole life, and your whole life what you've understood Christianity about is do good so that God will love you. Let me tell you, that is a, that is a, a fail every time. We long to do good because God has loved us in Christ. Maybe this morning you're stuck because you just need to reach out and say, God, thank you. I, I can't earn your love. I'm going to stop trying to earn your love. Thank you for giving me your love as a free gift in Jesus. And maybe this morning is just that beautiful moment for you just to reach out and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. We, we lean in with all of our effort to become like Jesus, but the beginning point is just receiving that free gift. So as we close in worship, I asked him to come up and uh, lead us in a song that I think expresses that. It, it, uh, it expresses really beautifully uh, our absolute dependence upon Jesus to do this work in us. Father, we, we proclaim that we, we, we long to be transformed and become more like Jesus, uh, not just in the things that people see, but when no one is watching. In those hidden places of our heart, we long uh, for purity, for holiness, for uh, a passion for things that are that are good and, and right and beautiful. And we acknowledge we cannot change those things, but you can, and you, you are for us, and you are working. And I pray, Father, this morning, if, if uh, there's, there's a pattern in our life that we need, maybe need to disrupt and change, there's a pattern that we need to grow and build, that we'd have the courage and wisdom to find it and chase after it. Or maybe, Father, there's, there's a, a dispute, a grumbling that's just taken up its, its evil place in our heart and it's halting us from really chasing hard after you. I pray, Father, we would be released from that. We would learn to be people who are so deeply grateful for all that Jesus has done that we could release the wrongs done to us and live in peace. Father, thank you that uh, you cause our lights to shine. I pray this week even that we would have opportunity to initiate conversations with people who don't know your son Jesus and they'd be drawn not to us but to the beauty of Jesus in us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.